it's time to build. At least as far as we can determine, we are within days of starting work on our new property in Burnsville. There are a few hurdles yet to clear, and we rest in the realization that it is the prerogative of our Sovereign Lord to stop this project in its tracks if He so chooses. But all of these qualifiers aside, it would appear to be time to build. And so Eden Baptist Church stands at the start of a great adventure. This adventure will call upon every ounce of energy that we can muster as a congregation. This adventure will demand unique perseverance as well as heaven-sent love for and cooperation with one another through this work. But above all, we acknowledge here together as a church today that God must go with us. Without Him, we can do nothing. Obviously, there are easier, there are safer, there are less costly ways to live out our life together as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it was 13 years ago, I reviewed my notes this week, 13 years ago, or about that, during a Sunday evening service following a strategic leaders retreat that Eden Baptist Church chose the risk and the pain of climbing this mountain. One of the compelling motivations for choosing this path was fear. The fear that we might come to rest at ease and stagnate as a church in this current facility. I think the years have borne out that that fear is legitimate. For times have become for us here quite easy, financially speaking. We realize that if we faithfully led people to Christ, if we were going to be about the business of the Gospel, if we continue to be faithful to God's calling as those who shepherd the souls of others, and we were not going to be content simply circling our wagons here at this place and remaining to ourselves as a family, if all of this was going to happen, we would eventually need a larger facility. And so we chose to press ourselves to secure a permanent base of operation on a visible property that would provide self-sufficiency in housing our church ministries and would allow us to gain the stability necessary to start a solid assembly out of the membership here. And we believe we found that property. It's taken us many years to locate it, to secure it, to purchase that property. But we've not cut corners there, but God in His mercy has provided us an excellent property. More recently, we have faced the daunting task of securing financing to build. And those that have been with us through this 13, 12, 13 year process, you know these various steps have all been somewhat painful. They've been difficult. And this last one, certainly among them. At the end of the first quarter of this year, we faced a $276,000 gap between us and the start of construction just at the end of the first quarter. It would not be difficult for any of us to imagine that that hurdle would stall us for some years to come. But God chose to stir the spirit of His people 
And last week we exceeded that gap. Now, we, just, we have to stop and consider this. I mean, talking to the guy in the street next to you, you're in the bus somewhere, or standing on the sidewalk, or talking to somebody at work or in the neighborhood, they're really not going to care about this. But we do care about this because we know what God has done. Think of it, nearly $280,000 in five months. Why? I don't think there's really any answer to it other than God has poured out His grace, the grace of giving upon this assembly. Why? On a human level, because people have chosen to lay up treasures in heaven. God's people have made sacrifices of material wealth and future security that make no earthly sense unless they want to partner with God. We're not going to blame God for our mistakes. We don't know all of what He's up to. We don't, we're not speaking for Him in that sense. But I think I can speak for those who have made significant sacrifices saying, I want to partner with God. I want to lay up treasures in heaven. It's the only answer in this small assembly. To this point, our journey has not been easy. It's not been safe. It's not been cheap. And we aren't nearly done. In fact, I want to stress this to us as a congregation today. There's no intention to ever permit ourselves to reach a place of ease and safety that discourages risk-taking. Unless the DNA of this church changes, we will continue to place ourselves in a position where we attempt hard things for the cause of Christ that forces us to walk in utter dependence upon the Lord. Now that's an uncomfortable place for all of us to be. I include myself at the top of that list. It's not what we would choose to bring on ourselves and our natural self-protectiveness. But this path is purposefully chosen that we place ourselves where we are pressing forward the cause of Christ in dependence upon Him. And this path, I think, places us in rare company. And it demands that we seek sustaining strength and enabling wisdom from the history of faithful believers who were sustained by God's grace in very challenging times. There's not a lot of places that we can necessarily turn. But we turn to the Scriptures for our aid, for our help, for our instruction. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 11, you remember Paul recounts Israel's idolatry and he says this, hear it, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. What the Israelites did in their idolatry, Paul says, was recorded in biblical writ for our benefit, that we might learn from them. God, clearly, in this book, has not chosen to write the story of everyone who's trusted Him. But there are select individuals, there are select times in history, there are select situations that God has recorded for our instruction, that we might learn negatively the sin to avoid, that positively we may pursue faith in God. While we walk under the blessings of a better covenant, helpful instruction and encouragement is found for us at this critical juncture of our church's history 
in the prophecies of Haggai. I'd like us to heed the word of the Lord. May God help us to do so as we turn to that book. I should have given it to you at the beginning so you could find it by now. It's, it's hidden in there, but uh, Haggai comes right after Zephaniah. That doesn't help a lot either, does it? They're, they're tucked away, these short prophets. Zechariah, a little bit longer, toward the end of the uh, minor prophets. Haggai, Zechariah. Let's bring ourselves into the setting here because I think it's very instructive. Our situation is not this situation. And we're not drawing direct ideas from it, saying that this is God's Word directly to us. But I think we see some unique parallels in the challenge that is before us. Let's go back to 586 B.C. Israel's southern kingdom, comprised of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, were taken captive for 70 years, deported to Babylon. During the invasion, Babylonian armies, and this is critical, they destroyed Solomon's temple. The place of the worship of God was gone, essentially. It had been stripped of its holdings, and those had been hauled off to Babylon. Then King Cyrus of Persia conquered Babylon, and in 537 he issued a decree that the Jews could return to the promised land, and nearly 50,000 took that opportunity. In only their second year back in the land, They've been punished by God. They've been removed to Babylon. They've now come back. They're here for only two years, and they begin to lay the foundations of a temple to replace Solomon's. They dig in the ground. They lay the stone. The foundations are there for this temple. And then, in 534 B.C., the work stopped. Seventeen years have passed. Seventeen years after the foundations of this second temple have been laid, we come to Haggai's first oracle, his first message, his first word from God to the covenant people. In verse 1 of chapter 1, the prophet Haggai writes that in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Haggai receives this word from God then on August 29th, 520 B.C., a day on which the Israelites gathered to worship the Lord once a month in a unique way there. It was harvest time, but at this time Judea is suffering drought. The prophet Haggai speaks for God to whom? First to Zerubbabel, that's the civic leader of Israel. He was heir to the Davidic throne and thus represented the monarchy. And to Joshua, the religious leader of Israel, representing the priesthood. He addresses them specifically and speaking, of course, ultimately to the people. In verse 2, God assesses the attitude of the Israelites. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. On a human level, you realize they had some pretty good reasons for drawing that conclusion. First of all, Artaxerxes, the king that had just passed, we have of course now King Cyrus, but Artaxerxes, not long before, had issued a decree that they had to stop. On top of that, 
They faced stiff opposition from the Samaritans living in the area who had made it very difficult for them. And then there was this famine that was going on. A season of economic hardship for them. You say it's not time to build the house of God. God's call to the Israelites comes in verse 3 down through verse 11 where we read, Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Let's assess your situation. Let's assess your attitude here. The Israelites concluded it was not a good time to build God's house, but it was a fine time to build their own houses. They were busy about fixing up their own places, but God's place was left abandoned. Wood-paneled houses, a higher quality of building material, showing attention and time to getting their properties in line. Now there's nothing innately evil about investing in one's own house. In fact, Jeremiah prophesied that that's what they should do. They should build their houses. That was a different context. But there's nothing evil about building one's house. The problem was the Israelites were prioritizing investment in their own houses over investment in God's house. There's not a direct parallel between us and a church building. It's not the temple over there on Highway 13. It's not a sacred place in that sense. But there is the situation of prioritizing our own world, investing time and resources and energies to build our own properties and to set God's work somewhere aside, down the list somewhere where we can fit it in, if I have time. God, in a sense, asks in verse 5, how's that working for you? Is that working out all right? Let's think about it, verse 5. He says, now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. How's that working for you? You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. The money flies away. Per the terms of the covenant between Israel and God, Israel's unfaithfulness led to divine discipline. No matter how hard they worked, they just never could get ahead on their finances. They couldn't quite catch it. It wasn't time to build the house of God. I think this situation reflects a fundamental principle of material wealth. And that is the idea the Old Testament refers to as first fruits, giving. That is, we learn to give to God first. It's a fundamental principle of the wealth that God places in the hands of His people. God comes first. Now there's some children here among us. It's a long thought, ways away of you thinking about actually owning a home. And there's some renters here, and you're probably saying it's a long ways away from my ever owning a home as well. But listen, it may not be. And in preparation, I think this is an important point to grab. For those that don't own homes, let me encourage you, you're not ready to purchase a house until you learn to tithe your income to God. 
It is a common practice among Christians. But we need to secure a place to live. It doesn't make sense to rent when you can be investing in your own home and building equity in your own home. So we need to first purchase a home, then we'll work to get that up to speed and we'll, we'll work to control our finances that we can begin to get it under control financially. And then as time passes, we will be prosperous enough to give to God. What they need to get under control is their hard attitude toward the work of the Lord. It's not coming first. It's coming second. Plain and simple. In fact, while we are not under the terms of the Old Covenant, it is remarkable how consistently those who prioritize their house over God's work never seem to get ahead financially. It just never happens. Verses 5 and 6, in a sense, play out in their life. They're just always chasing, trying to get there. And it's a, a misunderstanding entirely of what wealth is. No matter what you make, it's not enough. We see these people who win millions of dollars and we think, well, they have enough. No, they don't. And many of them end up in poverty. But we always have something else we think we could purchase, something else that, where it could be used. Not just on ourselves, but even in giving. We don't ever have enough. What we need to do is get our orientation right that wealth belongs to God and to invest in my own things at the expense of investing in His work is idolatry. God was not pleased with the situation. And He issues a corrective command in verse 7 to the Israelites. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Pretty clear, isn't it, what he's saying? It's time to build. Not because the timing was right, but because the cause was right. Not because it was convenient or easy, but because it was a faithful response to God's purposes. Verse 8 is really then the central point of the book. Build the house. We could almost title it that rather than Haggai. Build the house of God. That's this whole call to them here. Notice at the end of verse 9, he says, Because my house lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. There's a certain way of reading that. That's a God is selfish. He's whining like a spoiled brat, wanting his turn so that he can have his house like everyone else has a house of their own. Well, obviously that's not what he's saying. What angers God is when His people run around pursuing personal pleasure and gain while showing no such energies to advance the cause of God. So as God told David and Solomon in building the first temple, God needs no house. He has no need at all. What Could we imagine in some way that He did? He wouldn't ask us to supply it. He owns all things. He doesn't need a house. What angers God is that His people have lost their sense of priority. They are working energetically to get their stuff. 
to make that home nice, to take care of all of their things, losing sight of the fact that God's the one who supplies it all. He's not saying, give me my house like yours. He's saying, get your priorities right. Start with the work of God. And indeed, our places and our homes are the work of God if understood rightly. But the superior love of God was displaced for the idolatrous love of their own homes. And God loves His people enough to be sure that such idolatry, such harmful thinking, never ends well. He does not want to confirm us in such idolatry. And so verse 10, Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, on, on all their labors. What? We've been praying to God that it would rain. That the moisture coming off the Mediterranean Sea in the summer, it basically never rains at all, but this moisture coming off the Mediterranean Sea would meet those cool breezes and would create this heavy dew that would feed the plants through the dry season. And you're doing this? Yes, I'm doing this. Because your priorities are all wrong. He wanted them to find their joy in Him and to build their houses with the love of God. It would start with His house and it would work its way down, not the other way around. And so He withheld the dew to bring them to their knees and He sent His Word to change their hearts. What do we learn as followers of Christ and participants in the blessings of the new covenant? We're not under this old covenant. But I think we learn from these people of faith and the way in which God works with them of a significant danger that we must avoid. God's work can stagnate when we place undue attention upon our own private possessions and goals. That's a concern that we should have as a church. God's work can stagnate when we place undue attention upon our own private possessions and goals. God's work typically advances on the backs of people who prioritize His work over their own personal interests. And great is their reward in this life and the next. Luke chapter 18, 29 and 30. God never remains in our debt. Not now, not for eternity. But there's a danger there that we put our things ahead of the work of God. Secondly, and second danger, is that God's work can stagnate when we bow to the fear of difficulties. These were not easy times financially for the Israelites. They've just come back from Babylon. They don't have time in in this land. They don't have resources built up. They're coming back from Babylon... It's difficult. For these returned captives, resources were limited. The economy was not exactly thriving. The Dow Jones was way down for them. And famine was severe. There was no time to mess around with building a temple. We're working on feeding ourselves. They failed to appreciate the fact that they were dealing with a sovereign God who is not intimidated by the difficulty of circumstances. Never. Hasn't He taught us this over and over again? 
This was the God who fed Israel in the midst of famine by sending Joseph to Egypt. This is the God who with the unemployed Israelites in a desert rained down manna. This is the God who fed Elijah during a famine by sending birds to deliver bread. Now we're not to put God to the test by giving what we do not have. We're not to be foolish, jump off the pinnacle of the temple and ask Him to catch us. But the truth is, if you look at economic indicators, you will never find a good time to invest in the cause of Christ. Never. Because when times are good and the economy is strong, it's too expensive. And when the economy is weak, it's too risky. Mark Twain said this memorably, I have known a great many troubles, but most of them never happened. Indeed, there are always a thousand reasons to worry ourselves away from risk-taking for the cause of Christ. Yes, our nation may be headed for severe economic collapse, or not. But as Proverbs says, he who looks at the clouds will never sow. Knowing that I have but one life to live for Christ, for me, I'd rather suffer the pain of having risked much for his cause and failed than spend my days patting myself on the back at being so cautious that I avoided all pain. It's time to build, God says to Israel. It's time to build. Now it's time to build. It was bad timing historically. It hadn't been long. They'd been told to stop by the king. It was bad timing economically. They were scrambling just to feed themselves. It was bad timing politically. It was bad timing agriculturally. God's response, go out to those hills, cut down some trees and build. It's time. Because it's my time. I'm sure, undoubtedly, there were those who probably came in and told Haggai he was goofy This is a bad message. We can't pull this off. We can't do this. But in the mercy of God, there were people who said, this is the Word of the Lord. So we see the response in verse 12, that Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, that's the people, not just a remnant of those who were returned, but the remnant is those who did return. So the people of Israel obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. As the Lord their God had sent them, we should read that as since the Lord their God sent him or because the Lord has sent him. They take it as the word of the Lord and they fear the Lord. That is, they accepted His corrective word and changed course. You are prioritizing your own world. Your own houses have become too great in your sight, and you've left the work of the Lord alone. That's wrong. And they said, you're right. And they changed course. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, they changed course, and God changes His tune. Immediately. Verse 13. Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. What's his message? I am with you, declares the Lord. 
There's just there's, there's no lack of grace in God. It's like, yeah, you find that you got it. I told you so. It's, I'm with you. Some parents maybe have had this experience. There's a, a lazy kid on the couch, and it really gets you irritated. And you say something, it's a rebuke to get up, to get going, to get this done, and that kid jumps up and starts changing course. Well, how do you respond? All staying in your anger, frustration? No, very quickly you change and get with them, don't you? And encourage them. This is exciting. There's a response. That's where God is in a sense here. It's a, it's a sharp rebuke to the Israelites. But as soon as they say, God, you're right, we're going to get moving, He jumps to their side and says, I'm with you. Know this, I'm with you in this. Verse 14, And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. You know what? It was still a famine. It was, still wasn't time, humanly speaking. But they got busy doing what God had called them to do. On the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. You get the idea that that timing matters. This is the day they began to obey. Probably making some preparations before that. But you know, apart from God stirring, apart from God stirring the Spirit, nothing is going to get done for Him. It is the grace of God that moves His people to want to carry forward His cause no matter the circumstances. What is it that drives people to pour out their lives and their resources to advance the cause of Christ? It doesn't come from within us. It's the evidence of the Spirit of God having changed us and leading us in this direction. He stirs the Spirit of His people to pick up the work The ministry of God's people can stagnate when we become obsessed with our own things and neglect God's work. The ministry of God's people can stagnate when we allow negative circumstances to discourage us. But when God stirs the spirit of His people, they can accomplish whatever He wants them to accomplish. And without that stirring, they'll accomplish nothing. But the key to it is that God is with us. That's the motivation. That's our comfort and strength. So much had changed. A great work had now begun on the house of God. And we come then to Haggai's second oracle. We'll linger over this just for a brief time, but I think it's important in the whole flow of what is taking place. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. This is October 17th, month of Tishri. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, to Joshua, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say this, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Now here Haggai, speaking the word of God, addresses some discouragement in the ranks. It wasn't difficult to understand this discouragement. There were possibly some who 70 years earlier had seen Solomon's temple before the Babylonians destroyed it and carted off its treasures to Babylon. Now the point is not, do you see the foundations here? They're really wimpy compared to Solomon's foundations. That's not the point. In fact, there's some indication, though it's not fully laid out for us in the book of Ezra, 
that these foundations may have been larger. The height perhaps not as high on the porch, but at any rate, it's not, it's not that the, the thing's smaller. The point is that this temple would not boast the same quality of materials or the same quality of craftsmanship. And if there were a few old geezers there that had been there 70 years earlier and were old enough at that time to see it, and they, they I mean, don't, it doesn't look so good, does it? We're not going to do as well this time as we did the first time. Beyond the materials and the craftsmanship, there'd be no Ark of the Covenant with the ornate mercy seat behind the inner veil. Nobody knows where that is or where it went. There'd be no Shekinah glory, no cloud veiling the brilliant glory of God's presence behind that inner veil. Yet God encourages Israel, verse 4. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, high priest. Be strong, people of the land. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. See, it's not the magnificence of the building, it's the presence of God among His people. If they're doing what He wants them to do, forget about how it compares with Solomon's temple. I'm with you in this. Be strong. Be courageous. Don't be discouraged. Verse 5, According to the covenant that I made with you when you came to Egypt, My Spirit remains in your midst, so fear not. What encouraging words. Here it is again, the utter essential assurance of God's presence. I'm with you, my spirit remains in your midst. And the faith response is, don't fear. They should look at the famine, look at the opposition of the Samaritans, look at the difficulty of the task, and then they needed to look longer. Verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. What's the first shaking? Perhaps it's Sinai as God comes down to give His law and the mountain shakes. Now God promises that He will shake all things at the end of the ages. He will so move the nations that they will bring their treasures into Jerusalem in homage to Messiah. This word treasure can be translated desire or that which is precious. Since the Hebrew word is singular, not plural, as the ESV has it, many take this as a reference to Jesus. The desire of all nations will come into this temple. There's no doubt that's the case. The problem is that phrase, shall come, is plural. Uh, not he will come, singular, but they will come, plural, which probably then should be taken as these treasures that are brought in. It's not a big deal because they're brought into the reigning Christ who will be in his temple. So whether we take it as a messianic reference or reference to the tribute that the nations will bring, we probably, I, I would say, almost certainly have reference here to the tribute of the nations that will be brought to Christ during the millennial reign. So you see what he's saying to them. Don't be discouraged by just the little issue here. You can be discouraged as you look just around you and at your situation. Look long. This temple is the place of God's redeeming grace on this earth. 
And there will be a day that all the treasures of the nations will be brought right here. This place you're building. Now, it won't be that place, but it's on this spot. It's this temple. So inferior craftsmanship, inferior materials, it doesn't look so great. Look long. God is up to great things here. Someday this place will resonate with the glory of Christ. And in fact, in some sense, this prophecy has been fulfilled as that grace stood in the temple, in the person of Jesus Christ. Then he adds this phrase, this almost proverb, verse 8, The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. This declaration that in the end all wealth belongs to God and He puts it in our hands to accomplish His purposes. Do we see that? I don't think there's any question this church sees that. We wouldn't be where we are today. Many people that realize all wealth has been given to me by God and it's in my hands to move around for His glory. It's sometimes difficult to know how to do that. Where to invest what and how to, how to use our resources. But the point is very clear. It's all the Lord's. Not one of us can claim to know with utter certainty what God desires for us to do with our wealth, but what we can know with absolute assurance is that if you have money, if you have stock in a company, if you have a retirement account, if you have a savings account, if you've got 45 cents in your pocket, it belongs to God. It's all His. What this verse teaches is that nothing in this world that God wants to do is beyond His means. He can afford anything He wants to do. There are times when He stirs His people to do that through the resources that He's put in their care. And He was doing that here. And so he says prophetically, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Again, returns to the matter of verse 3, speaking of that golden age in which the temple will be filled with the glory of God in a way that outshines even the first temple. It could refer to Jesus who preached peace in the temple, or it could be a reference to the millennial temple. In any event, It's Christ's presence that will bring about this grace, this peace, as the Lord of hosts declares. He has big plans for this place. Everything they were doing was part of God's larger redemptive purposes. Now, Eden Baptist Church, in one sense, our calling as a church is not as significant in redemptive history as that of the Israelites rebuilding the temple. But our endeavors are of no less interest to God because He has a will for us. It's not to build the temple in Jerusalem. Anybody got that notion? We'd try to dissuade them. That probably wouldn't be a good idea to try to go over there and do that right now. No, that's not His purpose for us. As we position ourselves on the crossroads to announce the gospel of Christ crucified and risen, However, our endeavors are of keen interest to God. Because it is through His people, by His grace through this church, that the gospel of Christ is being announced. 
that we shine light upon the person of Christ. And what we must realize from these oracles of Haggai then is that we need to fear God and seek His presence. That is what is all important. It is our attitude as we go through that is far more important even than the money that we put down. Without His blessing, we can do nothing. With His blessing, He will stir spirits to serve together under the unique supply of His grace to accomplish whatever His hand finds to do as He puts it in our heart to do it. God alone, as our memory verse of last week said, God alone is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, we may abound in every good work. God will supply what we need to accomplish His purposes. What is at issue is the attitude, the orientation, the love, and the worship of our souls. This is a spiritual battle. And so because all sufficiency in all things at all times flows from a God who owns all the gold and silver, we need to be a people of prayer. And we need to come to the throne of grace repeatedly, consistently, and fervently as we enter into this project. So today at our picnic, as we get some food to eat and spend some time together, soon after eating is wound up, we're going to encourage everybody to come into the building, which in our case is actually set for demolition rather than construction first, but not today, that won't be. But uh, we'd like everybody to come into the building. And we're going to seek the Lord in prayer there together as a congregation on the foundations where, by His grace, a building will be erected. This Wednesday night from 6.30 to 8.30, we're calling the church to a unique season of prayer and fasting to set aside food for this day on Wednesday, or to set aside a meal, but to come with earnestness before the Lord with our minds focused because our stomachs are empty, for some, but for all to come, that we as a church would humble ourselves in this season of prayer for two hours with prayer and fasting, saying, we need God. We need His presence. We need His blessing upon us, upon our work, upon the spread of His name and His glory. We need God to go with us. We need Him to stir our spirits. We're not up to this. It's harder than what we can accomplish in our own strength. As God moves and works, there's no question He's able to do whatever He desires to do. So may He find us in dependent prayer this afternoon as a congregation, this coming Wednesday night at 6.30 as a congregation. Come and go as you need to, but for those that are able to come with fasting and prayer for two hours to uniquely humble ourselves before the Lord and to say in concert as a congregation, we need you. I may speak to someone here who does not understand any of this. But I think the one thing that you should grab onto is this idea of God with us. 
that's not a way that Christians just sanitize whatever they want to do and say, God's with me in whatever I'm striving to do. The good news that we find in Scripture is this beautiful idea that God is with us. That was the name that was given to the Lord Jesus Christ. Emmanuel, which means God with us. He came to this world to take on flesh and to die in a sinner's place, to pay the penalty of sin, and to rise from the dead. God was with us in Jesus Christ. And He came to do a work that you cannot do in your own strength. And Now as we come to trust that message of forgiveness of which we've been singing today, God remains with us in Christ. We enter into this world not in our own strength, not pursuing our own idols and our own things, but we enter into this world and walk every day in it knowing that God will never leave us or forsake us because we've been reconciled to Him through the work of Christ. If you want to know more about that message, there are percentage-wise many people that will be entering at this picnic today that would love to talk to you about God with us and the forgiveness of sins. Please speak to someone today as you leave. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we dedicate the remainder of this day to you, asking that you will bless at our picnic together in our prayer time as we eat, as we play and enjoy this day in our life together as a church. At the start of what would appear to be a very harrowing season in our church's life, we throw ourselves at Your mercy. We are so very aware that there's so many safer, less risky, less costly ways forward. There's a lot of different stories that we could strive to write. We take some confidence in the fact that this is a long story. Not an idea that's been hatched overnight. But we recognize, Father, that we don't see it all. We don't know what's coming. We don't know what the future holds. We don't know what you'll be pleased to do. But I think I pray in behalf of this church with accuracy to say that if you slam the door on us this week, we'd get knocked to our knees and we'd worship you in thanksgiving. Stop us where you wish. But Father, where you are act, moving and acting, I pray that you will work, that you will move our spirits to accomplish what you desire, and that you will bring about that which brings glory and honor to your name. We throw ourselves at Your mercy. We plead for Your wisdom to be worked out among us. And I pray that we would all rejoice to be reconciled to God. For anyone that cannot pray that and sing that truth, I ask that You'll open their eyes and bring them to saving faith today that they'd be born again, born from above. For those of us who know You, we lift our voices in song because you've put gladness in our hearts. 
to consider who we were without Christ and who we are with Him, we cannot expect but to sing with thanksgiving for the rest of time. Forgive us our weak affections. Forgive us our poor songs. Forgive us our failure to love You with all of our heart. Father, now as we stand as a congregation and sing, I pray that despite all our weakness, You would find in the songs of Your people pleasure as we give You praise. Through Christ we pray. Amen.